When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I am adding a new segment to my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes. I would love for you to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes, and early reads and pre-pub author chats. For February, Lauren Willig's new book is one of my selections, as well as a likely story, a debut by Lee Abramson. The link to join that is in the show notes as well. Today, I am chatting with Grady Hendricks about how to sell a haunted house. Grady is an award-winning novelist and screenwriter living in New York City. He is the author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is being adapted into a feature film by Amazon Studios, We Sold Our Souls, and the New York Times bestseller, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, currently being adapted into a TV series. Grady also authored the Bram Stoker award-winning nonfiction book, Paperbacks from Hell, a history of the horror paperback boom of the 70s and 80s, and his latest nonfiction book is These Fist Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome, Grady. How are you today? Uh, Tired, but good. It's a pub date for the book, so it's a lot going on. I bet there is a lot going on. And first, congratulations, not only on the pub date, but on all of the press. You are a number one Indie Next pick. You are in People Magazine. And I feel like it is all over Instagram. It all has to make you very happy. It does. But, it, you know, it's funny. It's... I don't know. It's your relationship to a book is so weird. Like this one, you know, it it took me a really long time. I was just looking, I think I wrote the first seven pages of this book on November 5th, 2020. And, you know, I turned it in last year at some point and I've been working on the new one for 2024. So it's, it's always very strange when suddenly the pub date hits. 
it kind of feels real. It kind of doesn't. I don't know. It's all, it's, it's a very weird, publishing's weird. You kind of exist in this strange state of time dilation all the time. The press stuff, I try not to pay too much attention to just because um, that it's always nice. Like it's, it's always fantastic. And listen, press is better than no press. But it also really, I, I've seen some other writers and some people I know that kind of stuff can get in your head and really, it gets to be a slippery slope. And before you know it, you're responding to people on Goodreads and that's never where you want to end up. <laughs> I agree with that completely. The couple of times I've had authors respond to me, I was like, mm, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's like people on Goodreads, they're, they're having a party in the basement with like the lights off. And when the author comes in, it's like mom and dad just flipped on the lights and are like, what's going on in here? Like, no one wants it. No one wants it. I like that analogy. Well, I have so many questions, but before we dive into those, will you give me a quick synopsis of how to sell a haunted house? Sure. It's uh, a book about a brother and sister who are who are adults and really dislike each other and try to have as little to do with each other as possible. And when their parents pass away, they have to come together and clean out their childhood home and put it on the market. And the house is, of course, haunted by puppets and dolls, which is really disgusting. I don't know why I did that to readers. Well, I have to laugh because that is the number one thing I've been commenting on when people are posting about your book on Instagram is I will never look at puppets and dolls the same way again. And everybody else is saying the same thing. How did you decide to write about puppets and dolls? Well, you know, it's funny. Once I, re I realized this would be a haunted house book because I was writing it during the pandemic and I wasn't able, I mean, like most of us, I wasn't able to be around my family. And so I wanted to sort of make up an imaginary family I could spend time with. Because one of the things with a book is you're going to spend about 10 months with these people and in this place. And so for me, it really helps to make it people and a place that I enjoy. And so I wanted to hang out with this family, the joiners. And, and so I made them up and I made up my friends. Um, and if you're going to write about family, you're doing a haunted house book. I mean, family, you know, they're always about haunted houses. If you're talking about a family, family secrets, family curses, family heirlooms, all that stuff. And as I started doing that, I realized that ghosts are really just kind of about things that get left behind. Emotional stuff, sure, you know, when someone dies, grief, trauma, all that. I hate saying trauma, grief, scars, things like that, family stories. But then the other part of it is the physical stuff, right? Uh, and, and, and so if you're talking about physical stuff, I think people have a really weird, myself included, have a really weird relationship with inanimate objects that I don't think gets talked about very much. And, you know, the one inanimate object that can make eye contact is a doll and a puppet's just a doll times 11. So that sort of was the chain of thought that, that got me to such a tragic place. It definitely was a tragic place. I am not a horror reader normally at all. I'm a huge oh. wimp, but I kept seeing all these great things about your book. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it. And everybody's like, it's not that scary. It's just creepy. I'm like, well, I can probably handle creepy. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. But I started reading it at night. I have no idea why. And I had to immediately stop that. Like I got two chapters in and I was like, <laughs> okay, this is the wrong book for me at night. So I moved it to during the day and I did way better. But I will tell you, like, I've never been a fan of dolls. And, you know, you go to, I don't know, different places, a bed and breakfast or whatever, and there's all these dolls everywhere. And you're like, oh. But now I truly, when I see a doll or a puppet, I'm going to always think of your book. Oh, well, I appreciate that. But also, you know, it's funny. Well, two things. One is, I'm glad it creeped you out. I, I have no perspective on my books until they get out in the wild. Like, what's funny, what's not, what's scary, what's not. It's just, I'm too close to it. So it's nice to hear that, that it's working. But the other thing is, you know, you say that about dolls, and, and I don't doubt you. 
but we're around dolls all the time. I mean, people's Funkos, uh, collectible action figures, uh, you know, stuff, little toys our dogs have. I feel like there's so many tiny versions of ourselves out there that go beyond weird porcelain-faced Victorian <laughs> doll with human hair sitting on a shelf staring at me. Blinking eyes. That's the yeah. other thing about dolls, I think, so much of the time is the blinking eyes, you know? Oh, for baby dolls? Yes. Yeah. Or even like those Madame Alexander dolls and different mm-hmm. things like that, which I had when I was young. But American Girl dolls? Yes. They all have blinking eyes. Yeah. American Girl dolls also get their own cafe, Party Central. They do. I've actually done that when my girls were young. So yes. <laughs> but So wait, did you find it creepy though? No, but I don't really feel like the American Girl dolls are very creepy. To me, the creepier dolls are the older ones, you know, the ones sure. that are kind of all dusty and wearing Victorian clothing and sometimes they're a little bit scarier looking. I don't know. I don't really find American Girl dolls that scary. But of course, we haven't had one in our house in over a decade. It also, I think, context matters. Years ago, I think it was winter, December of 2020, we went down, we were doing Christmas in Charleston because my mom uh, was having a rough time with, with, with isolation stuff. So my nephew went down. He and I drove down and we we isolated for about 10 days before we saw her. And my sister had rented this Airbnb that he and I showed up at, at like, God, like two in the morning. We'd been dri- driven down for like 16 hours. And um, this place was like murder central. It was, <laughs> it was clearly the Airbnb where they kept people. They were human trafficking before they put them in the cargo containers. It was just, you know, there was like a room where the only furniture was an air mattress and an empty box of diapers with a battery powered lamp on top of it. No way. Yeah, it was really grim. And so we're walking around this house being like, I don't know if we can stay here. This is, he, he absolutely wanted to refuse to stay there. I'm like, dude, I, I don't know. And, and I looked under the bed because I always check under a bed when I'm in somewhere new and staring back at me was this life-size stuffed a lion. It was a lion. And I remember just being terrified. A stuffed lion doesn't terrify me in general. It's a pretty friendly looking one. But the fact that it was under my bed and I had just gotten down there sort of and was like at eye level with it, it just really was blood chilling. So I think context matters. I think context does matter. And I, I agree with that completely. And I mean, I haven't really had much experience with puppets at all. It always makes me think of The Sound of Music when they do that one song. Yeah. That's really the only thing I think about puppets. But I'll tell you, I will be running the other way now just because I'm like, oh, but that's okay. But in addition to writing about dolls and puppets, you infuse a lot of humor into the story. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, there's two things with that that I think are, are interesting. And one is horror books are one thing, but horror movies. Um, which I think is is most people's way into horror. You know, I think it's just easier to read, watch a ninety minute movie than to read a book. But I can't think of a horror movie that doesn't have jokes in it and humor. Even something as grim as Alien or The Blair Witch Project has has whole sections that are designed to be funny. So I really feel like horror and humor really go together. And I think it's because filmmakers understand in a way that some writers understand just tension and release, right? You 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 can only wind people up for so long before you need to to let them blow off steam. You need them to let their guard down, and 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 you need them to relate to the characters in a human way. And what makes someone seem human faster than humor? Also, with that, I think 
I don't know. I, I don't know about your life, but mine is not single genre. You know, I go through a day and it is intense physical comedy next to weeping emo sadness, next to, if I'm lucky, a little bit of romance, next to more weeping emo sadness. I just feel like everything in our lives is just a multi-genre train wreck uh, where everything's next to everything else. I mean, you know, you are going to have a really, really great, funny conversation with someone at your parents' funeral. You are going to have a really, really depressing realization at a birthday party. You know, these things just aren't mutually exclusive. And I'm limited as a writer. I can only write what, what I see in the world around me. And what I see is sort of this, these things all sitting next to each other. I like that, especially about our days not being single genre. I'm going to use that. I'll credit you. Please do. (laughs) And I expect a small, a small honorarium with each usage. There you go. Or you could do a blanket license. (laughs) There you go. Okay. We can work that out afterwards. You also address some important themes in this one, how subjective memories can be, family drama, grief, how secrets never stay hidden. There's a lot of other issues in addition to the puppets and the dolls. Well, you know, if you're going to write about a family, they need to feel like a real family. And I'm not a part of anyone else's family, so I have to look to mine. And it's full of this kind of stuff. I mean, I I feel like every family I know is, but families are all backstory and families are all emotional interactions and jockeying and all kinds of stuff and you know there's nothing more disorienting because you feel like you know your family and you feel like you know your siblings and your parents but you really only have your point of view and so there's nothing more disorienting than say you're talking to one of your sisters and and they tell you their version or no they tell you a story about the family that you know but their version of it is so radically different from yours. And I just feel like this is families. We think we know them, we really don't. And we're constantly competing and jockeying and and battling and jostling. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to keep talking. I mean, that's that's death, I think, in a family is once people stop talking. Even if you're fighting, as long as you keep talking, there's hope. Well, and particularly siblings in terms of viewing the same event in different ways. I think so many things go into sibling relationships, birth order, you know, what was happening in your parents' life, what was happening in your own life. And I think those dynamics get cemented really early on, and they clearly did for Mark and Louise, and it's really hard to change them. Yeah, well, and it's also completely unfair. You know, my sisters and I all pretty much have each other locked in at about 13. And it's very hard to get beyond those perceptions. And in some ways, they're correct. You know, you'll see a sibling do something they've done all their life, and you just roll your eyes. On the other hand, you're really not giving each other any room to become new people or different people. And and it's also interesting, though, because so my mom's mother, and my mom's mother's mother, I would say back to great, great grandparents. Every generation has pretty much stayed put all the way in Charleston, all the way to my mom's generation, she and her sisters. And then my cousins and my sisters and I were the first ones to really leave town. And and that that was not a big deal. And that is really gives you a lot of options. You can be done with your family if you want these days. You can just walk away and never look back. 
And I'm not sure. I know what there always used to be in my family, people who, who weren't, you know, Blanche isn't talking to, to Marguerite or something like that. But but you were always around each other. You were always sort of part of the same story, but you can really edit yourself out now. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I know one thing it's had an impact on with my sisters and I is definitely we've realized as our parents get older, we have to figure out what our family looks like once our parents die. And it doesn't have to look like anything. We can all go our separate ways. But I think we've all kind of tacitly agreed that we don't want to do that, even if it requires some sacrifice and some knuckle biting and some shutting up and some letting go of grudges. I think we've all agreed that we do want to still be a family after that. But but figuring that out and figuring out the shape of that, I think is really hard and weird. And it takes so much more effort when you're not in the same place. Yeah, absolutely. You have to go out of your way to see each other. Like I said, you could very easily just choose not to. And the idea of people being frozen at 13 in terms of the things you assign to them, you just think about yourself at 13 and you know think about yourself now. And there's a lot of growing up as well as changing habits and things like that. I mean, you're just viewing the world very differently at that age than when you're grown up. There's a, yeah, absolutely. But there's a lot of change, but there's also something stay the same. Yeah. I don't know. What's your, when you think of yourself inside your head, how old are you? I would say in my mid-20s because I think that that is the time period I, I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed all of my life, but I do think of myself as in my mid-20s. Yeah. See, for me, I think I'm about 15, maybe 16, not quite. You know, maybe just driving at night legally. But um, all the resentments I had, all the stuff, it, it's right there. And so I think you're right that we should be allowed to check because we're so radically different than we were. I mean, I, you know, I, I look at my 30s and I'm just embarrassed at what a mess I was. But at the same time, I think there's things that are really connected, you know, and to our to our youth. And I look at people who are in their 80s and their 70s, and I think for them that must be very similar. That there are threads in them that when you pluck those strings, it yanks back on something from when they were whatever that age is, 13, 16, 21, 22, which is so strange to think about. It is. And the fact that you can carry resentments throughout your entire life, especially regarding family. Absolutely. And, you know, listen, I think some resentments are good. I've got a, a real knee-jerk hatred of certain things that has stood me in good stead, as long as they stay in their boxes. You know, I've got a real childish and immature reaction to authority, teachers, things like that. But uh, we're well, not so much teachers, administrators. But at the same time, yeah, that stuff can drag you down if, it, if you hold it too tight. For sure. Well, how did you start writing horror? I know you have written a number of books, but how did you get going in that genre? So I wasn't a natural horror guy. I read, you know, Stephen King and Clive Barker growing up in the Anne Rice vampire books because they were around and they were fun. And I was a journalist for a really long time. And about 2008, those jobs went away with the financial crash. Uh, just being a, I made really good money as a freelancer doing cultural coverage for like variety and newspapers and magazines. And that, that work just died uh, almost overnight. And so I didn't really have a whole lot of other skill. Uh, I could type fast. And so I decided I was going to double down on trying to write fiction. So I went to something called the Clarion Fantasy and Science Fiction Writers Workshop out at UC San Diego. 
which has been around for a long time. And it really changed my life. I think it's about 20, 28 people, maybe a little fewer. But you write a story a week, everyone critiques it, you have a different writer who comes in each week is is sort of a, a, a teacher, Kim Stanley Robinson and Kelly Black and Paul Park and Liz Hand and Larissa Lai. And it's you're generating a lot of stuff. But the thing for me was being around all these other people who were younger than I was, and taking writing seriously. And it made me take writing seriously, because I didn't want to be the one jerk who wasn't. And I realized that they were all, for the most part, further ahead than I was. They were better read than I was in terms of genre. They had a better idea of the landscape and how it worked. It really made me step up my game. And after that, I just wrote. And I'm very lucky that I married and I have a partner who works. And there's been years where I carry us financially and years where she carried us financially. And she really did a lot of the heavy lifting after that for, for a couple of years because I wasn't making anything as a freelancer at that point. And there wasn't any money out there to make, uh, even writing journalism or nonfiction. And so I was co-writing stuff with people. I was doing anything I could. I had a friend in LA. We were writing all these scripts together and taking meetings and going nowhere. And I realized that the stuff people liked that I was writing leaned more towards horror. I was writing sci-fi and all kinds of stuff. but So I started writing more horror and I wrote a couple of books and I trunked them. And But anyways, but a friend of mine from Clarion, his girlfriend at the time, wife now, she was an editor and she was interviewing at Quirk Books and they, for a job. And they said, you know, who are some of the writers you'd bring over? And she named me and she didn't get the job. But the editor she interviewed with, Jason Rakulik, called me and said, you know, you got anything to show me? I had a trunked book, a a haunted house book. And I sent it over and he really hated it, but he liked my writing style. And so we started trying to to figure out what to do and came up with Horror Store uh, about a haunted Ikea. And that was my first book. And I just sort of kept going from there. But it really was a long chain of events. And, you know, and I realized that I was I was luck. Horror was the only thing I could write because I'm, I can only write about what's around me. And, you know, a lot of science fiction, you're dealing with, you know, the future or another planet or something and, or another dimension. And a lot of fantasy, you're dealing with a secondary world. And a lot of literary fiction is just boring. And I didn't have the, the right membership card. I didn't go to an MFA program. I didn't go to, you know, something like that, which is, I think, what you need in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, literary fiction to sort of get on tray to those editors and gatekeepers. But horror is about mostly the world around us, even though some of my stuff's set in the 80s or the 90s, but it's about the world around us. And it's about, you know, it's not about aliens or or hobbits or anything. It's just about people. And that's really what I like writing about and what I'm capable of writing about. So I should have been a little more directed and there should have been a little more of a plan, but I wound up writing in the genre that's really the only one I could have pulled off. Well, and sci-fi and fantasy require so much world building most of the time. And if that's something that doesn't really appeal to you, building a whole new world, you'd rather be writing about people than definitely horror is a better genre. Yeah. Although I find that the older I get, the more, I mean, I feel like I'm doing as much world building as like J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, I'm writing a book set in 1970 right now. And oh my God, making sure the language is right, that you're not using anachronistic terms or phrases, pulling up TV schedules and weather charts and 
maps and reference photos. It's just, you know, getting the clothes right is a nightmare. I've got all these Sears and JCPenney magazine uh, catalogs sitting next to me that I use for reference. And it's really seating charts, all this stuff for when people have dinner. It's, I agree with you. I think that kind of secondary world building is immense. But I find that to make even the world around me feel real, I've got to know everything about it. And so the second I start writing, the older I get, the more background research it seems to take. Absolutely. And picking a decade like the 70s that so many people associate with certain things, you definitely want to get that right. Right. And also the other problem is if you're writing about, say, 1970 or 1990, there's a tendency to sort of grab the greatest hits from the decade. But the beginning of every decade, and I would even say into the decade, no one gets rid of their wardrobe and their car and their favorite expressions New Year's Eve 1969 as they go into 1970. I mean, there's people driving 1964 cars in 1974. So you don't want to make everything two seventies because not everyone changed at the same pace. So it's really, I find it very, very difficult to not even get it right, but get it believable enough for myself to to feel comfortable writing it. That makes perfect sense. And I'm sure you at some point reach a point where you're like, okay, I really need to write, but I just want to make sure I've spent enough time getting all the details the way you want them to be. Yeah, because what happens is I will start writing and then it'll start falling apart. It'll be like it'll be like I'm carrying um, a, a paper lantern in my hand and it starts to rain. Just It just all begins to fall apart. And before you know it, everyone just feels like paper dolls. I'm moving around. I really... I have to get the people right. And to get the people right, I've got to get their stuff right and, and their world right and, and what they wear and how they talk and where they went to high school and all that stuff. I mean, it just sounds so ridiculous, but I require an enormous amount of, of you know that kind of stuff to feel like I can write it. I don't think it sounds ridiculous at all. And I read a ton of historical fiction. That's kind of what I specialize in. So, I mean, I hear that all the time from authors because they are wanting to get the time period right and the words right and exactly what you're describing, what cars they were driving, if it's, you know, a time period where there were cars, what they're wearing, how they're interacting socially. I mean, I think that is definitely part of writing another time period. Right, right. And also, you know, it's very hard to say, right? I mean, this book I'm writing set in 1970, I'm writing, there are a lot of young women in it. And so for me, it's really, it's a really tough act to get into the mindset of someone. And I feel it could be the same if there were male characters as well, just most of my characters in this book seem to be female. But again, the mindset of characters who accept limitations that would be inconceivable to me. You know, a 16-year-old in 1970, maybe some extraordinary 16-year-olds would be thinking that the world is their oyster and they can do anything they want. But for the large number of them, you're a 16-year-old woman in 1970, even if you're very open-minded and progressive, there's going to be lots of doors that are closed to you in terms of what you can be as an adult. You aren't going to dream too much about going into the Air Force. You're not going to dream about being an asteroid. There's so many things you're not going to dream about or even consider, but you're also not going to sit there thinking, oh my gosh, this glass ceiling hurts. So you don't (laughs) see it. Right, right. You know what I mean? And so that's a tricky mindset to get into. I mean, to get into the mindset of someone who just is never going to see a computer or deal with a computer in their life, that's 
you know, to even remember, I grew up when, when long distance calls cost a lot of money and you looked at the phone bill and all this stuff to imagine that, you know, I'm a character and it's always just going to be a pain in the butt to talk to someone two states away. Whereas now I don't think twice about calling someone in England. So it's just those kind of things are so tricky to work out. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes me think back on the long distance and you'd call after a certain time at night because it would be cheaper. Right, right. And also hiding the bill from your parents so they didn't know you were calling like your girlfriend or something like or or people, they, they didn't want you running up the long distance bill. But, it, but and that, I guess the tricky thing is, and I'm saying this poorly, but it's hard to accept the limitations of the time and write within them without treating them as limitations. But for the people living in 1970, those didn't seem to be limitations. Those were just the natural shape of the world. It was just their lives. Right, exactly. There wasn't anything beyond it because how could there be? Right. That's a very good point. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about your cover because I'm a huge cover person and I think your cover is outstanding. Do you just love it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's great. It, it's, uh, I find covers very, very difficult because they're so important and everyone really, really has a strong opinion about a cover. And I yearn for the old days of a strong art director. You know, I think in the 90s, books really, they went from where an era when art directors were were lords of the world. And art directors said, all our covers are going to have red on them. And whoa, the entire line had red on it. And, you know, now I think sales and marketing have a lot to say about it. Your editor has a lot to say about it, the art writer. And so everyone has input. And I think it's all good input. But there's no one voice that's louder than everyone else. And so it becomes very difficult. And I, I miss the days when you had art directors who they didn't really care about anything you cared about. They cared about strong design. And that would be the loudest voice in the room. So I, I love my covers. Uh, and I work really hard with the art department and, and with my editor and everyone in sales and marketing on them. But, you know, it's always so hard to get there. And I, I just wish I always, I always yearn for that, you know, someone like uh, Lynn Leone or someone to just be, be like, nope, Joe Plumeri, you know, this is how it's going to be. No, oh, okay, yes, sir. You're the art director. <laughs> this is the cover and I'm not arguing about it. Exactly. Exactly. I'm the art director. I know design. You don't shut up. <laughs> because then it's there. It's all on them, right? You don't have any responsibility for it. Well, that's a good point, but I really like yours. And it was, again, another thing that really drew me to your story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought we wound up in a really great place with it. And, and I think that, you know, you go through so many iterations that you don't even see it after a certain point. So it's nice to know it works for people. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, so this is where it's a little weird because most of what I read is old. So I hope that's okay. Absolutely. So I've been going through um, a phase reading a lot of doll, haunted doll books, just because I've got a haunted doll book out. And, and so I'm sort of like getting the landscape a little. And there's two books that I read, well, three books I've read that really blew my mind. And they're all written for young readers. Uh, and they're sort of, you know, pre, gosh, what was the first year, the year of the first Harry Potter book, 95 or 97? I don't know. I'm sorry. I know book four came out in 2001 because that was the first time I was pregnant. 
with my first child and I read book four. So I know okay. 2001 was book four, but I don't know about before that. So I think it was 97, but I'm not sure. But before Harry Potter, really, you know, YA didn't so much exist. It existed, but it was, it was a lot of it was juvenile fiction and it was much smaller and no one really cared about it because it didn't make as, a lot of money. And it was just regarded as kind of a backwater. And so there was a lot of freedom to do some really dire stuff. And so there's three doll books I read. One is called Revenge of the Dolls by Carol Beach York from late 70s, I believe. Small book, I think it's like 103 pages. And it's just about a girl who goes with her parents to her grandmother's or her great aunt's house. And the adults are discussing putting the aunt in a home. And the aunt, great aunt has killer dolls in the house. And it is a very slim book. Not a lot happens on the page. But it's got this really beautiful sort of autumnal feeling of adult life observed by an 11-year-old sort of standing on the outside of it and not quite getting what's going on. And this idea of she's seeing some of the horrible things adults do to each other for the first time. And it's just this real, it, it just this sense of losing your innocence pervades this book. It really hits above its weight for a very small book about dolls. Then there's a book by William Sleater. I don't know if people know Sleater, but he wrote a book called House of Stairs, Interstellar Pig. He was a big sci-fi author for, for teen readers in the 70s and I think the 80s. And he wrote a book called Among the Dolls that is one of the most evil little things I've ever read in my life. And it's about a girl whose parents are getting divorced and she has a dollhouse. And she starts enacting all the sick dynamics in her family on the dolls. And then one day she shrinks to the size of the dolls and the dolls are really excited that now she's small and defenseless and they can do to her what she's been doing to them. It is really mean and really twisted. And then the last one is a book called Moth Manor, M-A-N-O-R, from 1978, I think, by Martha Bacon. And it is, I picked it up and sort of put off reading it. It's a pretty drab book. It's out of print now. It's amazing. I mean, I got it for like two bucks on Amazon. It's amazing. It is it is the kind of writing Neil Gaiman sometimes does when he's at the top of his game. Just a very dry, fairy tale, surreal sense of humor. And it's about a haunted dollhouse and these two little girls who own it. And there's all this comedy in it. There's all these surreal touches, lost things that wind up in a desert far away, full of lost things. And there's this, again, this real sense of childhood's end because you start with these girls one's eight and one's 11 i think and you end with them in their 80s with this haunted dollhouse and it's just there wasn't a single page that didn't have something that surprised me or made me laugh or was poignant or or unexpected it really i wish someone would bring it back into print because it really it really did blow me away well i think i've had my fill of doll stories from your book for now <laughs> but Fair enough. I'm going to keep this list in case I want to revisit them. But it's also great to have to recommend to other people when they're saying, I need another book like this one. Right. And well, Mothman are definitely you can't go wrong with. And you know what? Too much is never enough, as Jacqueline Suzanne once said. <laughs> well, Grady, congratulations again on your pub day and on getting How to Sell a Haunted House out into the world. And thanks for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, 
messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.